Hey, everybody. It's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with two very special guests. Laura Deming of Longevity Fund and Will Eden, uh, currently an EIR with Eric Anderson, who notably founded Adamab, uh, and before that spent six years at Teal Capital focusing on early stage life science VC investing. Will, uh, Laura, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Will, you've been a biotech investor for quite some time now. Why don't you sort of give us a lay of the land of sort of the different segments within biotech that, that you invest in? Really what we focused on was sort of first placements, um, seed to series B. So really focused on the kind of early, early stuff, yeah. right? So most of these companies were preclinical, um, though we did some, you know, early clinical companies, but, you know, very, very much on the uh, super early side of things. Um, if you look at the investments that you've made over the past you know, many years, how do you bucket the different categories that they, that they would fit in? How, how do you slice up the, the biotech investing world? There's a whole bunch of different ways you could do it. Um, one, one could be by the sort of type of thing it's doing. Cause like technically we're kind of broadly life sciences, but that could mean like pharmaceuticals, that could mean biotech, it could be tools and services, right? Um, so I would say really the space can be broken down by like what is the actual product the company's doing. And I would argue these are like very different businesses, like very, very, very different businesses. <laughs> um, you can certainly break things down by stage, but you know, I think that's, that's more familiar. So how about even within bio then? What, what are the different segments within bio that you might invest in? Right. I mean, I think once you're talking within biotech, people mostly mean therapeutics. So you could do it by therapeutic area. You know, there's like antibodies, there's RNA, there's cell therapy, right? You could also commonly break that down by what is the actual focus of the company? You know, is it on like cardiology or, you know, aging or something like that? I think, I think those tend to be the kind of broad types of categories you find. Got it. Uh, yeah. Let, let's keep, this is helpful. Let's keep outlining. How about within pharmaceuticals? Like how would you, how do you break up that world? Yeah. I mean, pharma as distinct from bio usually just means sort of like small molecules. And there's a lot less activity there, though. If you see things, I'm certainly, certainly curious, right? Um, but uh, but I do think a lot of the action has been in biotech therapeutics proper, right. I would say. So there's biotech, there's pharmaceutical. What was the other sort of meta structure? I would also say there's med devices. That ends up being a pretty different world, right? Because you're still kind of working with the body and within the medical system, um, but the intervention is completely different, yeah. right? You're not trying to put a drug into someone's system. You might be like implanting something in them or something like that. So in some ways, it's kind of much more broad. Um, it's also different in terms of how the FDA treats them. So it's a really different world, actually. Mm. Uh, tools and services, that's where you're not necessarily trying to sell the drugs yourself. You know, maybe you're like licensing a key part of a drug or something like that, or it's like antibody discovery or right like that. That ends up being kind of the most broad segment, I would say. And uh, you can have very different models within that, either sort of selling, you know, the services on a like cost basis to these companies, or you can, you know, try to get some sort of future income stream from something that's invented using these tools. If you could create a new genus in this like Linnaean hierarchy, what would it be? 
<laughs> Yo, you asked the tough questions. <laughs> um, well, I would argue that like the sort of digital health slash tech side is trying to become a new part of bio, I would say. I don't know that digital apps, uh, particularly, I think they've been pretty averse to undergoing FDA regulation. Um, I would, would point to paratherapeutics as being an interesting case where they're actually the first FDA approved digital health therapeutic. That's quite a feat. And that's, I mean, as far as I can tell, that is like a genuine new type of company that we haven't seen yet, I would say. Are we underweighting how important that sector will become? Well, it's tricky, right? Like what, what are the things that digital health can do for health versus drugs? right? Um, are we going to get a digital health intervention that will help with cancer? For instance, I think it's hard to see a cancer cure coming out of digital health. And a lot of the stuff that pair has certainly in the front of the pipeline is more like psychological psychiatric, right? So certainly the things where we know you can have a psychological impact on the body, you know, that's certainly ripe for it. Um, I think a lot of the digital health people are, are less focused on, on trying to actually get an FDA approved product though. It's much more about like, you know, health and wellness, I would say, which, which I think is, um, a very, very different type of company. That's not one that I really looked at much. What, uh, technical innovations in non, uh, software or CS relevant, uh, Hard science domain, do you think will massively impact uh, biotech in the coming decades? Yeah, interesting question. Um, I've seen some interesting like nanotechnology applications um, where these are things that do not fit cleanly into uh, a drug paradigm, you know, but they're also not a med device either. There are drug device combos, but that's usually like implantable devices that like emit drugs. Whereas I'm talking about like small, you know, nanostructures that are doing things like chelating very specific, you know, fractions of the blood or something. Right. I mean, that's just that, that also is something that doesn't fit cleanly into a current paradigm. Right. It's like kind of plasmapheresis, but it's being done via an injection of like a nanoparticle. I mean, that's, that's kind of crazy. Right. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, I think like very small scale manufacturing could, could significantly change the face of things. Or is there anything you would add or edit to Will's description of, of bio or life science, life sciences generally in terms of how he slices the world and where would you place longevity fund and focus in that bucket? We focus on longevity companies. That's a very broad term that encompasses all platform companies. Uh, <laughs> you know, if you knew what you wanted to do to impact longevity and couldn't because the platform technology wasn't available, we view it as on mission to invest in companies that would allow you to um, uh, make the change that you wanted to a patient. The one thing we don't invest in are um, sort of therapies focused on diseases or patho sort of um, pathologies where there's no possibility of generalization. That all of our investments right. plausibly could impact total number of healthy years of life with an emphasis on the healthy part of years of life. For listeners who may not be as familiar, can you describe what a platform company is? I guess I could try to take a, um, a crack at it, but it might be a little bit more of a cynical take, which is something like every company that doesn't have a platform says they have a platform. <laughs> um, I think there's a perception that like the valuation of a quote unquote platform company is higher. I think it's something like uh, 
to contrast it to to a simple case, right, which would be um, a single drug, right? There is a company that has one compound, and the entire company lives or dies on that one compound. So one meaning of a platform could just be there's some underlying generative technology in some way, shape, or form, yeah. right? Maybe it's just a new assay, you know, some new like cell-based system, right? Just something that allows them to plausibly claim we're not just this like single asset company. But it's also different from a pipeline, right? Because a company could have, say, three drugs, but there's no real underlying like rhyme or reason to why they have those three drugs, right? And there's no underlying <laughs> uh, technology there that means they'll have a fourth drug ever, right? So that's that's kind of a distinction, but in some sense, it's like almost defined by what it's not, right? It's not a single drug company. It's not a pipeline. It is a platform. <laughs> One illustration of that value you just described that platform companies... Uh, ascribe to themselves would be a conversation that um, Mark Levin and Steve Holtzman, two of the canonical leaders of biotech, had. They had founded a key platform company, Lighting Pharmaceuticals, in the 1990s. And as a result of this experience, um, where they had a multi-billion dollar sale to Decada, they came up with several principles for how to raise money as a platform company. And they were, don't uh, sell equity for money, Hmm. uh, don't take debt, don't give up any rights to anything in your pipeline. So basically, you know, none of the traditional ways in which to accrue value are open to you. And the conclusion from this was to only take gifts. And what that meant was to convince pharma that you had some kind of internal process that was so valuable, they should give you money and in a sense pay for the privilege of, of supporting your work to then be part of the conversation of where those programs later went. And the fact that this was a deal that was on the table maybe gives some context as to how a platform company might present itself. Though, how would a platform company even get to the point where that sort of deal is on the table, I guess, right? At some <laughs> yes. point, they have to take money from somewhere, right? right? I think this is a very extreme case of Mark Levin and Steve Holtzman being very good at their job, perhaps not generally applicable. Let's zoom out a little bit before zooming back in and maybe give a little context or history of to life science or, or bioinvesting. So it's 2020. Let's even start last two dec- decades. What, what can you talk about? Uh, what can you share about how life science investing and biotech investing has evolved over time? How is it intersected with traditional venture tech VC investing? And where are we now? Oh boy. Uh, how far back in the history do you want to go? <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the early biotech companies were actually coming out of the biofuels stuff happening in like the seventies and particularly the eighties. Um, and then you basically got, uh, Genentech founded and that was really the first sort of commercial proof of principle, uh, that something like biotech was actually feasible and possible. And you got a, a bunch of fast followers. And I would argue that we've seen a couple of, of, of sort of waves, right? I think you had the first wave in biotech largely in the eighties. I think that, that sort of, uh, had, had a ton of, a ton of success, like a lot. Um, and then I think you got sort of another wave of interest around the same time as the tech bubble in, uh, 2000. And then I think we're, we're currently in the middle of, uh, of, I would say a third wave of heightened interest. Um, how that relates to the tech scene, um, as far as I can tell, uh, tech investors 
are always interested in trying to get in on that action, yeah. right? Because they're seeing these things and it looks, you know, really, really powerful. Um, but there's often not a lot of kind of domain expertise yeah. there at the same time. And so um, I would say the pattern has been uh, tech money gets interested, but but there's often this barrier where it's sort of difficult for them to, to sort of get into the best deals. And uh, I don't think tech returns have always been spectacular, when sort of trying to get into biotech. Um, and I currently think we're, we're kind of in the middle of that stage right now where a lot of traditionally tech VCs have started to raise biotech funds and, um, it's still, yep, absolutely. And I would argue it's still too early to tell. Um, if you have, uh, some thoughts on this, I'm also <laughs> uh, curious. I'd be curious, what do you think is the rational thing to do if one highly weights that viewpoint? Right. I mean, it's something like uh, you could try to keep tech funds, tech funds, or keep the biotech funds in biotech. Um, but oftentimes there are these benefits to these sort of weird crossovers if you can make them work, right? Something something like Pear doesn't neatly fit into that dichotomy, but yet they were primarily financed by biotech VCs, right? They weren't financed by tech VCs. I do see much more interest in the tech side uh, in platforms, in part because there's ways to monetize platforms without having to go through the FDA. And I think that sort of allergy to the FDA has been one of the things that's held uh, tech funds back because they're always trying to find an angle that involves less regulation. But at the, the end of the day, if you're going to get a treatment into a patient, you almost certainly have to engage the FDA in some way, shape, yeah. or form. We, we defined platform companies earlier, but can you get, maybe give some examples that the tech VC firms are interested in based on or have invested in? A canonical platform company would be Genentech, the first ever biotech. Sure. Which was founded around the, the ability to recombine DNA and is now well known for its expertise in antibody therapeutics. Hmm. Who, let's uh, give more canonical examples that sort of, if you if there's three waves as, as you discuss, what are sort of like the big companies that marked each wave or, or big trends that marked each wave? Yeah, I mean, I think most of the most of the '90s and like '80s companies are kind of household names now, right? I mean, you had Celgene, Amgen, Genentech, Biogen. I mean, name any big biotech company; they almost all emerged from that period. It's yeah, it's what, very hard to find examples outside of that. What what did these companies do, or like was it all different things with similar trend but different? So they all sell drugs. Yeah, they make and sell drugs. Yeah, that's right. You can talk a little bit about new modalities too, right? That that characterize that era as well well right i mean as you point out with uh genentech it was basically the idea that you can have biology creating the drug for you right and that opened up a whole new world you got protein therapeutics you got antibodies right um the new modalities that we're seeing now is like cell therapies rna things like that um starting starting to get to much more complex drugs basically i mean like what is a car t cell right it is it is it is a full-blown t cell that has been pulled out of a human modified and put back in i mean that that is the most complex biologic we've probably ever administered to someone right can you define some of these varieties can you define cell therapies in rna yeah um cell therapies are effectively the idea that you're taking some cell type from the body it could be from yourself or it could be from a donor and you're either just sort of like putting that back in straight or you're modifying it in some way changing it influencing it but ultimately the goal is you take cells and you put them in a body and uh 
you know, stem cells are probably the thing that people hear a lot about. And there've been a lot of kind of stem cell clinics. Uh, I think the results from those have been equivocal and it's been one of those interesting sort of gray areas that wasn't super FDA regulated, but it's notable that despite it not being regulated, it's not like we saw like a big VC boom in stem cells right away. You saw a bunch of like independent experimental clinics. It was much more a bunch of doctors trying out this new technique uh, than it was a sort of, um, you know, boom in the in the in the kind of broad investment and sort of startup world. Um, and now now I think you're you're starting to see more attempts to use stem cells in a a way that fits the paradigm uh, better where these people are actually trying to get things passed through the FDA and actually do trials and such. One additional recent um, modality shifts or the introduction of new modalities can be seen as very important to new waves of groundbreaking companies emerging is the expertise that old companies build up over time no longer applies to the new methods of production. And the inherent advantages of scale expertise give way it, it, just in those waves very acutely to new companies that um, are pioneering these methods. And so if you're going to look for a space of next-gen Genentechs, you right. might look to see the new modalities emerge. And there have really been quite a few of them after quite a long time. Yeah, true. Um, I uh, I didn't mention gene therapies. But that's a huge one also, yeah, right? Uh, gene therapies, it's pretty much what it sounds like, right? Uh, the idea is you're trying to modify the genetic code of a like living, breathing human, right? Um, that's a, uh, a very uh, tall task, but we're starting to see the first approvals in that ever now. So, uh, yeah, no, I, I totally uh, concur. You didn't see the techniques pioneered by Genentech come out of a pharma company. You saw a new wave of biotech startups. And that's what really made the Bay Area itself such a hotbed for this stuff because it started here. Like this was the epicenter here. And that's what made it a second hub that in many ways equals the hub that is kind of like the world's sort of global hub in, in this stuff is Boston, right? But on many metrics, San Francisco is, you know, similar or close. And it's basically because of the 80s and because there's this completely new type of company that formed. And I think we could be seeing that now, right? I think the commercial adoption of these uh, complex therapies like cell and uh, gene therapies, I think that could end up being quite challenging. But if these companies are the next Genentech, I think they're largely emerging, you know, at least at the start as small independent startups and it has the potential to actually create new hubs i think uh which is which is not something that you see very new often is in like new like new san francisco, what san francisco yeah yeah absolutely i think i think there's absolutely the potential for that right um this stuff could end up being pretty widely distributed or it might be concentrated or it might exist in a hub that you know currently exists now but i think there's at least the potential for it um, which I don't think those opportunities come along very often. And what has enabled that potential? Good question. Do you want to try to tackle that? <laughs> exactly what we've just been talking about, to put it concretely, since 2015, all of these approvals of new modalities have occurred, new ways of making therapies, and you had seen no new 
ways of making therapies approved for decades before that, I think literally. Yeah, actually decades. What led to that approval? Did the technology better get better? The regulation got visa approval? You mean FDA approval? If you actually dig down in, into the histories of each one, you know, cell therapies were tried, you know, 30 years ago for like HIV. Um, it's, it's, it's been a lot of decades of sort of tinkering with this concept, continuing to try it and trying it in new diseases, right? Like now folks are trying to use it for cancer, but cancer wasn't the first application they tried, right? Similarly with uh, gene therapies, you know, there were some unfortunate early incidents that happened uh, in the history that I would say, you know, set gene therapy back by like 15 or 20 years, um, where they, they sort of went into humans a bit too quickly. It wasn't safe. There were some problems with it. And uh, it just really got sort of uh, cracked down on very, very hard. Is that is that what happened to you? <laughs> <laughs> No, fortunately. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, I would say these are the result of technologies that have been worked on for literally decades, and we're finally seeing them come to fruition. And I think if the if the environment around science and technology progress and the FDA had been different earlier, I think we would have probably gotten a different result sooner. That's my guess. To put a last pin in the point. Um, if you imagine the impact that the iPhone app store had on the numbers of tech startups and what it enabled you to do, um, imagine that you had five of those come out in the past three to four years and what that would do to the number and types of tech companies emerging. And that is exactly what's occurring in biotech today. So Laura, how do we get rich? <laughs> <laughs> the tech investor perspective. The number one way is to start a company. <laughs> right. So, um, but we, let me just understand. So big companies in the nineties, they made Genentech, et cetera. They made drugs. What did they make drugs for? I mean, with, uh, Genentech, it was insulin, right? It was very hard to get insulin before you would have to like extract it from, you know, a mammal, right? Yeah. Um, whereas that was the first time they basically could mass produce it, right? That, that was their kind of core, core thing that they proved was possible. Right. And so, like we didn't have innovation from decades. Why not in 2000 to 2010? Like what was missing or why didn't we have any, was the low hanging fruit picked? And then we just didn't have anything else after that. Or why, why was it? Ah, it's a hard question that like, that's, that's actually just a very, very hard question. But now we have the equivalent of five app stores, I guess. So if you were, you know, now it's 2020, if you were in 2005 versus 2010 versus 2015 versus 2020, like how would your, investment thesis have changed based on what, what the market is, like how is what you'd look to invest in have evolved over time? You haven't been doing it since 2005, but you've been doing it since, you know, sometime. So something that we've seen emerge is basically a new model, which doesn't really look like VC in any other field. And it's really just emerged basically immediately before and then through the financial crisis. Um, and it's basically a model where the VCs themselves are actually creating the biotech companies. Third Rock, Flagship, Arch, Polaris, Atlas, like these guys are the heavyweights in the field today. And almost all of them do most of their money internally. Like they, they find the science, they build these companies, they put in CEOs, they are the CEOs sometimes. Um, this has become, I would say, the dominant model. 
Um, you can still find like bottom up startup creation, um, but it's a systematically different set of VCs that invest in those sort of two groups of companies. So it's very clear the last decade has resulted in a completely new business model being driven by the VCs, actually. Um, I can't think of anything equivalent like that in tech. Yeah. What has enabled that in the last decade? Within, like, what, what, why has that happened now versus not 20 years ago? Even, even if you go and, and look at the successes in the 80s and the 90s, the VCs were still often very active, but that was also true in tech, right? It used to be much more common to like swap out a f- yeah. founding CEO. Yeah. Like, it's that's something you used to do. Yeah. In some ways, tech venture seems less active today. Indeed. (laughs) Indeed, that's the lesson that they've learned. Um, Whereas in biotech, even going back that far, um, I looked at some of the most successful companies and I found something like a little over half of them. Um, The VCs did swap out the founding CEO before it became like a really, really big company. And I think that what makes bio so hard a lot of ways is the kind of like biological complexity and uh i don't like the word randomness but it but it feels random to someone who's working on the problem and so i think that a lot of this new biotech model has emerged in response to those unique risks in bio where they're trying to put in much more money because if the first drug doesn't work you can test a second drug right they're putting in professional ceos that they know well they've like worked with them many times right they have a track record Bio has, has, has really become much more about sort of lowering risk, I think, and that has driven the business models, whereas I think tech VCs are still seeking risk. If, so if the first wave was Genentech and the third wave is right now, help describe what the second wave was and if that didn't have any big companies. Yeah, that's the interesting thing. Um, it's, it's hard to point to a lot of big successes during that area. Um, I, I think that, that a lot of it was being sort of pulled along by tech just because everyone was so excited in the VC model in general. Um, I think Vertex dates from that era, I believe. But yeah, it's it's much, much harder to find them. Um, I think like the smaller specialty pharma companies, some of the ones that are still independent are out there. But I think some of what you started to see is with the, like, yeah, when, when you got the wave in the 80s, those companies got big before the sort of incumbent big pharma's thought they should buy them, (laughs) right? And a bunch of those companies have subsequently been bought for a lot of money, but a lot of them are still nominally independent. But I think after that wave, Big Pharma realized that they messed up. They messed up by not getting in on this game earlier. Mm -hmm. And so I think a lot of the the successes you started to see emerging in the 90s and the 2000s, those got bought much faster, much earlier when they're much smaller. Right. And so even though those things become super successful, when you look at the drugs that those companies made, they're like buried in like three different pharma companies because they've like traded the rights and it's been a long time. So if you actually go back and you trace the lineage, right, you can find these companies, you can find traces of these companies, but they're much more integrated into the system today. Right. In in the last 20 years, help me understand what is sort of the scope of the biggest exits in, in, in biotech? Like all I know is stem centrics at ten billion. Is there something <laughs> that was a really big one? Is that like one of the biggest? Is there something at fifty? Uh, how many decacorns? Pharmacia was in the same range as uh, stem centrics, um, but uh, generally when it's above a certain size, we call that like M and A and like consolidation. Yeah. 
right? So, like, Celgene was just bought by BMS, right? That was a massive deal. But I think people don't call Celgene, like, a startup. That that wouldn't be called, like, an exit, per se, yeah. right? So, yeah, I think there's something like a, a soft cap of around $10 billion-ish, yeah. where you see a few at that number. And above that, I mean, it's just consolidation among these, like, really, really big companies. Yeah. Why is it so hard for a startup to ever get, get, that, get that big? Um, yeah, I think a couple different things, actually. Uh, one is the funding environment. It's really expensive to take a drug all the way. And if you just look at it from a financial perspective, um, again, we've, we've sort of entered this era where the really big companies tend to be built by the VCs. And the VCs have a timeline and they want to exit, right? And so you get this dynamic where if they can exit with a great IRR after a few years when the drug is in phase one, maybe phase two, maybe still preclinical, they'll sell. Yeah. And because they control these companies, they can sell. Yeah. So I think there's there's just less of a like financial incentive on the part of, of sort of anyone in the system uh, to see companies grow that big. Um, when you sort of look at, at sort of IRR based on exit, it does seem like there's a sort of magic window post phase two where like you just get the best exits. And companies that sort of limp through a phase three independently, well, there's usually a reason someone didn't try to buy them, yeah. right? And so generally the companies that, that go all the way, there tends to be a little bit of adverse selection, but it's just because the really good stuff tends to get bought, yeah. right? And what we've seen is like this is happening earlier and earlier and earlier with both M&A and IPOs, mm-hmm. Right. So in quite a few cases, a company might, you know, IPO and it's only a like few hundred million dollar company. Right. Whereas in tech, again, you see the total opposite, which yeah. hold it privately as long as you possibly can until it's, you know, almost a hundred billion dollar company. And then maybe we'll IPO, right? Is, that, is there a dearth of late stage private investment in biotech? I, I would personally say so, yes. And yet you guys are focused on the early stage. Is it because, hey, it's hard to create a late stage vehicle or, or what? Or because the returns are still best early stage or? There are late stage biotech funds, but they tend to be sort of um, like pre-IPO investors, right? So they'll come in on like the last round before something goes public. So they might do a mez around and then the IPO and then expect to exit. And so their model isn't like exiting any later than the early stage VCs. They're just coming in later and they can still get a good financial return, but their holding window is only like a few years long, right? Whereas, you know, even the sort of company creation VCs, their holding period might be, you know, five, six, seven years because they come in so early, but they're still IPOing comparatively early in the lifespan of that company. I would a couple things out of your comments. One is I'm curious how public market sentiment affects the venture IRR calculation hmm. and whether massively positive public market sentiment would result in an increase in larger independent companies over time. Secondly, observation... Um, in bio, it seems like there might be two phases to a company's life. Not as much for platform companies, definitely so for a single asset company, in which the first phase involves changing the product, being able to actually make improvements to your lead drug. And the second phase involves simply testing the efficacy of that product without being able to make any changes. Yeah, and that's for, really tricky. Particularly for a single asset company, that shift seems like a really big one for a CEO to take on. In tech, perhaps there's a similar dichotomy between making and selling a product, but that the ability to just completely, well, having to completely freeze seems like a big deal. 
I guess I'll tackle the second part first because I think it's a simpler question. Yeah, I don't think there's nearly such a distinct breaking point with tech. Like the the really big companies tend to be on this like smooth exponential curve. You don't get that sort of life cycle effect. Like, yeah, I get it. First, you're kind of building the product, but like you're doing it usually in conjunction with customers, right? Which is just completely the opposite in biotech. Again, unless you're selling like a tool or a service or something like that, right? If you're selling inputs to biotech, that's, I think, closer to uh, that model. But with tech, yeah, you have this tight feedback loop from the very beginning and the really good companies are these smooth exponential curves. And yeah, at some point you have to start monetizing it. I get it. Maybe something like B2B is closer than B2C uh, if, if you're going to try to draw an analogy to the tech sector. But uh, but yeah, I think I think biotech is completely unique for that very reason. Once you're locked in, you're locked in. You know, you, you can't easily change horses in, you know, mid phase two or something. <laughs> Imagine if Mark Zuckerberg had to market the same Facebook website that he built in his college dorm but for a decade. <laughs> that is essentially what you're doing as a biotech CEO of a single asset company. Yeah, that's a great analogy and shows just how crazy it is in industry. It's so different. So is, completely different. Is there any way that could change or is that just that's part of the game? Um, you know, the FDA is doing some interesting stuff with like personalized treatments. Um, historically, they've not really been super into that. It's like a drug's a drug, right? But particularly with some of these, uh, I would say cancer therapeutics in particular, um, there's just much more willingness to experiment. And the idea that sort of every person has their own unique tumor is something that I think has penetrated the FDA's consciousness, you know? And so creating a custom like cancer vaccine on a per patient basis. Like that's the kind of thing that they're starting to think about now. Um, so I'd say, yeah, personalized medicine is, is probably the closest parallel we can even draw, but you know, none of that's really that close to getting approval either. This is still in the really experimental stage to tackle your question about the kind of public market sentiment. Um, absolutely. The public markets affect the private market. For sure. And I think a lot of why we've seen this sort of biotech IPO uh, window is just because there's been so much public market interest. Like they've seen all these successes. They see this new technology. Science news, right, is, is just everywhere. There's all this potential. And quite frankly, uh, the tech VCs aren't giving up their companies <laughs> earlier. So it's like, what are you going to IPO, right? Well, uh, from the perspective of biotech, they're much more interested in sort of sharing that risk, right? And if they can share that risk with the public market at a low cost of capital, they're going to do it, right? So I would argue like we see IPOs because the public market is so interested in them. Uh, it's basically, at some point, it basically becomes a no-brainer as a financing event, right? It's like, why take private capital if you could get much cheaper capital on the public market? Well, turns out there's neither supply nor demand for late stage capital that's not public, at least right now on the current margin. I think we could definitely see the industry sh change shape dramatically if the IPO window actually closed. How, how have private equity or hedge funds or other asset classes you know, invested in into the space? Yeah, private equities tended to avoid it. Hedge funds have been pretty interested. Um, you can look at, you know, shops like Matrix or Viking. They're primarily hedge funds trading public equities, but they have a very large percentage of their fund allocated privately, right? And so you find those sort of uh, crossover investors cropping up more and more in the space, actually. Um, 
But yeah, you know, they're they're facing a similar concern where they have a pretty low cost of capital and they're seeking yield. It's very hard to get outsized returns as a hedge fund right now. So what do you do? Well, you start to buy in before the IPO. And then if you're buying into the MES round, why not buy into the round before that? And before you know it, they're funding Series A's. <laughs> Uh, private equity historically has been a little bit more conservative because they're generally looking for cash flows. You know, there more recently have been some uh, some tech oriented uh, private equity shops that have gone a little bit earlier. Um, but even then, they're sort of looking for a monetizable product. But Claris just got acquired uh, recently uh, by BlackRock, and so that that really does represent, I, I would say, the first steps of a private equity shop really starting to take seriously the idea of okay we're we're maybe going to do some like pre-commercialization stuff in the space and why would they do that or what's the why now seeking yield (laughs) (laughs) it's all yield (laughs) well i've wondered this question a lot what's the significance of martin shkreli oh boy yeah what a what a um conflicted character right he was doing a lot of the same practices that a lot of other people in the space were doing, you know, uh, buying up drugs and hiking up the price margins, right? He did it, but he wasn't a likable figure. And he did it loudly. And he claims he was doing this because he wanted to sort of draw attention to the industry. And I would say from from the perspective of, of impact, like the, the FDA, after all that went down, really did start to like take seriously like okay, Mylan's the only one making EpiPens and they've raised the price by like, you know, sixfold or like even more. Like actually his excess did call attention to the problem. Um, I don't think that makes him a good or a like noble figure, but I think like he actually had the desired effect, which is like people realized there was a problem, yeah. right? And um, yeah, the, the FDA subsequently, uh, particularly under Gottlieb, like really actually did try to sort of loosen... Um, Loosen the requirements on making generic versions of both drugs and devices as well. So yeah, I would would say overall the the effect was in the long run positive. Yeah. Why don't you give a little bit of a history of of the FDA in terms of, or even the last like decade or two? How has the FDA evolved their tune, and what have been some of the biggest effects of that, or what have been the biggest drawbacks of that, or and what where are we now? What can we expect going forward? Yeah, I mean, I would say the FDA is is pretty different. Um, so, just for some some background, the FDA, I think at this point, is well over a hundred years old. Um, it, they were originally just trying to, you know, do things like, you know, how much heroin and cocaine and marijuana can you put in your like over the counter medicine, <laughs> which is like a noble uh, pursuit, and. Um, they, they've sort of uh, grabbed more and more control over the process over time. Yeah. And uh, it really wasn't until thalidomide came along that the FDA requirements started to become much more severe. And what's interesting about that story, right? So the FDA was approving drugs based on safety only. They weren't trying to judge whether a drug worked, just whether it was safe. Thalidomide got approved in the, US, uh, in the EU, but it was not approved in the U.S., the the FDA successfully held the line and said, no, we're concerned about the safety. And they turned out to be absolutely right. Oh. So thalidomide was never a problem with the FDA. The, the FDA responded exactly the way they should have. And yet people were so freaked out about the thalidomide thing happening in Europe that everyone demanded that something should be done. 
And so what did they ultimately do? They created new bars for both safety and efficacy. It was just like a completely misguided, like someone has to do something. And that's basically the regime that we live in today. And I would argue that 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 switch, you know, we wouldn't have chemotherapy today under that, right? Like we could never get to the point where we're testing, you know, four toxic compounds in combination, right? Like this is almost impossible to do today. So I do think that that there are these sort of whole classes of experimentation and and certainly cost, right, has just skyrocketed exponentially. Cost to get a drug to market exponentially higher. So I think that's a huge loss. And I think if you kind of weigh the cost benefit, I think the FDA has probably been negative in that regard. Um, of course, you obviously don't want, you know, heroin and cocaine and marijuana in every over-the-counter, you know, like child's cough syrup, right? <laughs> well, one way to frame the problem would be future lives versus current lives. Right. And I think the FDA puts a very high discount rate on future yeah. lives. And yeah, I, I would similarly frame in terms of like type one and type two errors, right? It's very costly for the FDA to show that they let a drug through that killed people than that they held a drug back that saved people's lives. Um, there have been economists that have tried to measure this and it just seems like, you know, the FDA probably costs like hundreds of thousands of lives by not approving like heart drugs sooner. I mean, that's, that, that is a very real cost, but it's a hidden cost. So I think we just shouldn't expect the incentives to align, you know, such that we get the optimal outcome. Um, that's that. I think the FDA has changed a lot. And I think the FDA is, is actually getting better in a number of ways. Um, and I really didn't think I would say that before I really like dove into the field. But uh, I mentioned, you know, a bit about kind of like personalized treatments. That's interesting. That's experimental. But like even the fact that we have gene therapy, CAR-T, right? I mean, these are, again complex biologics with these like massive effects on the body and the fact that the fda is willing to like engage and approve that right it's even gotten to the point that people are worried maybe the fda is being a little bit too loose when it's approving drugs for these like you know super super you know ultra orphan conditions it's like okay there's only 100 patients in the whole world and you did one trial of 10 patients with no control and it seemed like compared to their peers, maybe they did better using historical controls, question mark, and they approve it. So if anything, the FDA has become loose enough that it's starting to actually get blowback from the other direction. So I think that's at least a good sign that that they are taking this problem seriously. There's also been a lot of talk about like changing trial design to make it more flexible and, and to having a sort of like different bar you need to meet, right, uh, depending on, on, uh, on certain cases. I think that's interesting. That's only really just begun to be explored. Um, I don't think adaptive trial designs have been used more than a few times yet. So, so this is still very, very new. I would also point to the history of like getting CAR-T approved. Um, some of the early experiments with uh, CAR-T cells uh, for cancer killed people. And when I saw that come out in the news, I basically thought CAR-T was set back a decade or more. And to my surprise, the FDA lifted the hold and let them continue the trials. I was shocked. I was shocked. Like that for me was a turning point where the FDA looked at it and said, you know, look, these patients only have a few months to live and they've cured a bunch of them. Cure, actual, actual cures. Some people died. Some people lived. They were all going to die before they got the drug. And they decided to just weigh it up and, and move forward, you know. 
but you only get that because these people had a few months to live, right? And I think if it's something like getting a new drug in like cardiology, that's like the largest effect size we could possibly have. Something that could cure heart disease, right? But like heart disease is like slow, silent killer over decades. So they're never going to like let a drug that, you know, only kills, you know, one in a thousand patients through like they're, they're not okay with that. Right. So it's very context dependent, but I think the FDA is doing a better job at taking that context into account than they used to, I would say. And how do you expect the FDA to evolve over the next five to 10 years? You know, a lot of that probably depends on the political climate and the FDA commissioner and other things that are pretty hard to predict. Um, the trend has been, I would say, quite positive. Um, but I could not tell you where it's going to be in five or 10 years, actually. One maybe very bad question would be, how is the FDA different from venture? Um you could see both as holding onto a rate-limited resource that constrains the progress of startups and making somewhat correlated decisions as to which startup should go forward and which startup shouldn't. I mean, one is a government agency and one is a market process. <laughs> that's I, a massive difference. So I think that's true. I, I would argue maybe one thing, which is I think people overly focus on the FDA slowing down the progress of groundbreaking therapies the big problem from a personal perspective would be the lack of groundbreaking therapies to move forward. I don't think that there are many which are simply being completely blocked sure. um, that are that I could point to today. One thing the FDA does do, which may be pernicious, is widely propagate ways of thinking about drug development biology, which may be very standardized and incorrect or not fully representative of what's going on. Venture also does that. So I don't think that venture is bad in all the ways of the FDA for all that's good may also be bad, but I do think they share some common traits, which may actually hold back the progress of certain startups. Yeah, um, I think you're right. They're both bottlenecks. I think they're bottlenecks in different parts of the process. But I totally agree that like attitudes of VCs can certainly affect what gets funded, and that sort of affects things upstream. I guess I would say with VCs, you sort of have like the pull side where like money is like trying to find good ideas and fund them. And they do have their own sets of biases, of course, like as do pharma companies, like funding trials, right? I mean, there, there, there are a lot of kind of angles on this. I wouldn't say any of them are perfect. On the flip side, you sort of have like the push motive coming from a lot of like funding agencies, right? The like, the like, there are tens of billions of dollars in basic research funding coming from the government, coming up with a ton of ideas, right? And I think the problem on the VC side more often is we see a hundred ideas and we don't think we can fund any of them. Then that there's like a groundbreaking idea where we're like, oh man, we can't fund that. I'm not going to say that it never happens. Like I, I personally have seen companies where I believe that the product works, but because of business reasons, I don't think I could fund them. I, I have been in that position and I've seen it and I, I totally hear you. And I think most VCs are a little bit too conservative. I, I would like to see a little bit more risk-taking, a bit more moonshots. But certainly before I became a VC, I was much more convinced that it was like insufficient you know, awesome stuff happening on the, on those, on those earliest stages where, where there just weren't good ideas to fund. Um, I am less, 
less convinced of that now, actually. There, there, there very much are good ideas out there worth funding. Some of them are fundable in the VC model. Some of them aren't. If you can wave a wand, uh, either of you or both of you, and change anything about either VC attitudes or VC approach that would bring about the outcome we all seek, what, what might that be? I'm fascinated by the idea that funding basic science can be profitable. And I'm not sure if you would call that venture capital, but I hope someday institutions will emerge that do that. How do you imagine that looking, I guess? I, I don't think it's possible right now for all areas of research. In fact, it's very obviously not if you run the calculations. I am curious if you were to look at the most productive researchers and select a group by certain characteristics each year, whether you'd find their aggregate royalties back from their companies might, under some financial terms, be enough to make that kind of model profitable. So from a very simple perspective, that's something that I'm curious about, but I haven't run that analysis. Yeah, I looked a little bit at, at like power law dynamics among IP, and it seems to be very extreme. There are a few patents that generate you know, most of all patent revenue, right? Though I think some of this is, uh, is confounded by the licensing terms. I would say most academic institutes give up IP for actually, I think, like pennies on the dollar for what they're actually worth sometimes. Though, again, I think some of this is because it's hard to tell ex ante what is actually going to work and not. And there's problems with translation. And, you know, I think, I think there, there are good reasons that they're somewhat systematically underpaid. But certainly, if you could identify an advanced valuable IP, um, there's definitely money there. There's absolutely money there. I mean, if you're talking about folks that have, like, less limited time horizons and lots of cash, this sort of raises the natural question of, like, why don't big pharma companies have like really good R&D centers, right? They spend billions of dollars every year on what amounts to R&D, right? This is supposed to be basic research, billions of dollars. Like why aren't pharma companies able to innovate? <laughs> Cuz like in in some sense that seems like like a perfect fit for your model in some way, right? These are corporations that are expecting to live for like 100 years, they're throwing off tons of cash, they fund billions of dollars. Which do you most respect? From an R&D perspective? Oh, um, I, I mostly think they're not doing good work, but it's a question of like, it, it seems like like the most natural thing that would fit the model that you're looking for would be like pharma companies actually doing good research. Right? <laughs> like they have long time horizons in that they expect to exist for a long time. If they make a drug, they can profit on it for 10, 15 years. And, and yet they don't seem to be able to actually produce reliably good work. Is it something that's systematically holding them back or is it just incompetence? That's a good question. Um, if it's incompetence, you'd expect it to be more sporadic instead of more total across the board. One recurrent theme is pharma companies making all the right products. So looking at their pipelines, having all the blockbuster drugs the next generation, and then stalling them out when another organization with different incentives presses pause. Um, I think my answer to the magic wand scenario, if there's one sort of change I could make, it would be something like outlaw marginal contributions, right? Just like, just actually make it illegal to take the old drug and make it like 20% better, right? And I know this is going to be incredibly controversial, but I think if we actually said like, no, you will never get that approved. We have a drug for that. You have to do something actually new. You have to do something new. 
you have to do something with a large effect size. I think that would actually light a fire under these, under everybody, under the researchers, the funders, the pharma companies, the startups, the VCs. If they all knew that they had to come up with something genuinely new, I think they would actually just take more moonshots. And, and I think we would actually get more out of it. For pharma, maybe, if you look at biotech today, would you say the majority of new credible startups funded are not working on novel approaches? Way more than I'd like. Way more than I'd like. When you look at it in aggregate, um, yeah, there are a couple of companies that are doing something like a totally new therapeutic modality. You have like a Velo doing like tons of bacteria, right, as a treatment. Like, okay, that's actually novel, right? But, you know, it's like when you look at acquisitions, it's like a target becomes hot and then you have a bunch of startups get acquired that happen to be working on that target and a bunch of new startups emerge working on that target. Or I would argue like rare genetically defined diseases. Like I'm, I'm, I'm glad that, you know, those hundred people are going to get a treatment. You know, what about the hundred million that are going to get cancer and heart disease, right? So I would argue that there has been a lot of um, investment in things that are marginal, either in terms of like the number of patients total or marginal in terms of they're not that much better than like the Me Too competitor who's, you know, a month behind them. I think I disagree with that. But or if you were to take the portfolios of flagship Atlas, Third Rock, would you argue that you know, CRISPR, mRNA, cell therapy that those aggregate portfolios represent me to follow on uh, approaches or that there are many other companies that are in that category that dwarf that, those aggregate startups in number. Yeah. I mean, I would say that it's hard to point to a sort of emerging therapeutic area that doesn't have at least a handful of companies doing it. And there's a question of like what the kind of marginal benefit is over, over those others. I basically think that it's good that we have many shots on goal, actually. Um, but at the same time, you're also picking, like, you know, the very most top end of the VCs and saying, well, is that good enough, right? But I'm, I'm interested in the full stack, right? I totally believe that there are, are a handful of good VCs that are doing stuff that's, like, really out there, right? What's the median biotech startup doing? I think I can pretty confidently say, just having looked at hundreds and hundreds of these, that like the medium biotech startup is not interesting and it's not novel, right? And that's just like a lot of wasted effort, years, dollars that I would just like to see repurposed into something that's, you know, trying a lot harder. Uh, this would be a uh, regulatory way to get about that. Is that approach because, hey, there's there's no other market way to do it or because, hey, we're already so we're regu regulating it so much, this would just be a more effective thing of what we're already doing. Uh, it's more just I'm trying to like pull out any stops that I possibly can to get anything to happen. <laughs> it's, it's so slow compared to what I think it could be, right? That, again, if I could wave a magic wand, right, there's all sorts of things I could do, yeah. right? But like at the very least, I sort of trust that one to like redirect people's efforts, right? right? Well, what would you do about uh, pads, how would you alter those or can you give some context on the, on how that works? Uh, patent law is another one of those things that's changed a lot over time. And I think knowing where the right place is, is very difficult. Actually, it's possible to keep things as trade secrets. Um, a lot of the particularly platform type companies will have some patents and some trade secrets because they don't want people to be able to perfectly copy it. 
But if it's something like a drug, like you just have to publish about it, right? Like you have to like release the chemical structure of it. Like that is just part of the like FDA process. So there's no real way to sort of get a competitive advantage in the space as it exists today without that. So like, would we need patents if you could, you know, just like freely sell drugs? I mean, sure, people used to do that all the time, right? I think that would look like a completely different system than, than we have now. I think it would be pretty hard for pharma as it exists today to basically exist without patent law. If anyone can freely copy the drug, why do you spend a billion dollars trying to get that drug to market? You know, you basically would have to spend multiples more than that on marketing just to make sure that, you know, you can penetrate consumer consciousness enough that that's the only drug of that class or like the, the only literal exact drug that they buy, right? I, I just think the entire market falls apart. If you pull out any one piece of it, right, the whole system looks radically different. So I don't think there's going to be one simple change you could make, like just, you know, pulling out IP completely that, that wouldn't, you know, radically change the whole system. And, and I think given other incentives right now, like we wouldn't produce a lot of new drugs. But, you know, there's there's also small shifts uh, in patents as well. I think, I think I will just like address a common misconception, which is the idea that, you know, tech is super competitive and bio is like really monopolistic because they have this, you know, IP for like 20 years on these drugs. If you actually just empirically look at it, tech has such strong network effects, you get a bunch of monopolies. Whereas biotech, you get a bunch of Me Too drugs. It's, it's the literal exact opposite story from the story that everyone tells. Biotech is ruthlessly competitive. It's ruthlessly competitive. And tech is too early, right? But, but once you have a winner, you know, we, we do see them unseated every so often. I, I, 30 years or so. Yeah. yeah, right. Facebook, Microsoft, yeah. Yeah, totally, right? Um, but even something like Microsoft, it seemed like it was a monopoly for a while, and then it seemed like it wasn't, and now it's one of the most valuable companies in the world. Yeah. So it's still doing really well, even though it's not a monopoly, technically. But yeah, I would say with Bio, you know, um, the IP allows the model to exist as it is. Uh, we would need something radically different if we didn't have it, and the protections are really not as strong as you think. I will also say, because of the influence of tech... The patent law has actually gotten significantly weaker. So you can't do something like literally copy someone's exact molecule, sure. But you often don't need to do that to find something that acts pretty similarly. And a lot of the patent law around things like, you know, half-life extension or things like that, that's that's getting thrown out actually at a much higher rate. Yeah. And uh, we, we, we have started to see pharma do a little bit less of that, where they're making these slight tweaks to drugs and then selling them. Still happens sometimes, happens less than it used to, because patent law has actually been weakened by tech. Right. In, in tech, we do think a lot about, or we are thinking collectively about antitrust as it relates to... You know, how do you make it so someone can disrupt a Facebook or a Google at, at some point? But then also we're having this conversation about are these um, spaces somewhat public goods or are they somewhat the commons? And how do, you know, and that's why people are excited about crypto for a bunch of, you know, can de yeah, de totally. the possibility of decentralizing control. What's sort of the equivalent in the biospace? One is antitrust a concern or is, is it not because it's competitive, but then also this concept of the commons or public goods. How do people think about that in bio or do they not think about it? Oh, I'd, I'd argue there are parallel conversations happening, but, but not quite that. Um, one thing that I hear a lot is like the government spends a lot of money doing pretty fundamental research. How much money actually comes back to the government from the output of that research? I think that's a, a very common complaint. And who makes, who capitalizes off that? Right. So I would say that's one way in which is parallel. You don't hear calls to like break up 
pharmaceutical companies because they have too much market power. And if you just look at it objectively, most of them don't have that much market power. The, the total size of the pharmaceutical industry is large, but the total number of players is large. It's like dozens of companies. And why aren't there monopolies? I guess no network effects or like what is... Yeah, you start to see monopolies on the margins, right? You get the Shkreli's, you get the Mylands, right? So like occasionally, rarely you see those emerge. And yeah, they use their pricing power to the fullest. They, they absolutely do. Um, but again, that's like how the system was deliberately built. So I do think there, there are those, are those issues on the margin, but they tend to be the smaller things. You know, that said, like the price of insulin has been going up really quickly recently well guess what there's like a lot of different types of insulin you want them for somewhat different situations and we're starting to see more stories about that when when something as vital and as widespread as insulin starts to have issues with pricing that's when we're going to see politics start to really hit this sector pretty hard i think so no i don't think there's a lot of talk about monopoly there's a lot of talk about pricing power should the government be able to negotiate drug prices? Should it be able to buy in bulk? Should we be able to import from overseas? Like these are all very real questions. But it's about pricing. It's not about monopoly. One of the things we were talking about before we started recording is that the way you different or, or you would want other VCs to think like you in terms of use. Uh, you see things. What was the word used? Indeterminate or determinate? I think. Why don't you introduce this concept? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, I am stealing this. Uh, from Teal. And the idea is, do you have a worldview that fundamentally believes that, that, that you can understand the world, right? Is the world determinate, right? Can you, you know, figure out the way a system works? Can you modify it? Can you do this reliably? Or is it indeterminate, right? Like biology is this complex system. It's extremely hard. We have all these unintended consequences. You don't know what's going on with every single piece of it. They're two radically different worldviews, right? And um, I basically think that most of the biotech field as it exists today, and again, I think this is maybe, you know, somewhat less true, you know, in the first wave of companies, but like the current belief implicitly looking at how people in the space act is that biology is fundamentally indeterminate that we cannot say things for certain, that we cannot know if a drug will work, that we cannot know what the effect of something will be until we test it. And I think that is a pervasive worldview all the way from like how stuff gets funded to the basic research, how the scientists think about it, how the VCs structure their companies to like avoid this, like all of it start to finish. I think that's the, the fundamental driving factor in why the sector looks like it does today. And so what are some constraints from other, like what would other people need to believe to come to that, that view? Like what is the crux of the difference? Yeah. I mean, if you ask them, they would probably say that I'm not indeterminate, like enough for the space, right? That like they've experienced this for decades. They've, they've experienced the losses. They've experienced the surprises and the failures. Right. And, and I think in the face of that, it's really hard to then, believe on a deep level that they can actually predict how things turn out. So I think it's more something like, can, can we either develop better tools and ways of analysis and ways of thinking and things like that, that will get us to better answers systematically, right? Or do we need people to just be willing to sort of go more out on a limb, right? And, and that's something we don't see a, a whole lot of today. And say more about the implications of, of what that uh, that mindset would lead to, just way more risk, way more 
Yeah, we would certainly see a lot more risk. I think we would see a lot more sort of seemingly crazy ideas. I think we'd see more complex interventions than are currently tested, right? There's there's so much focus on like, okay, we're going to keep the you know experimental group and the control group almost exactly the same. We're going to vary this one tiny piece, and then we're going to look at the effects in a whole bunch of different ways. And like that always gets you the same answer. It's a complex system. We saw some effect and a bunch of unexpected stuff, right? You don't see things like Coley's toxins, which was done, again, like a century back. It was just a guy who took a, like, bacterial sludge and injected it into tumors, and it occasionally cured them. <laughs> like, <laughs> but the funny thing is, the, like, FDA actually allowed a couple of people to try this pretty recently, <laughs> right? But, like, it was 100 years ago that we came up with the idea, and despite seeing cancer cures, it never developed into a systematic field of exploration, Laura, where, where do you stand on all this? I think I kind of flinched when you were making that analogy. I love it, actually. I think it's such a powerful framework. Recently, I have come more around to the belief that the very best people in biotech are much more determinate. And certainly if you ask the CMOs or CSOs of many large pharmas, they do view their pipeline as a portfolio and they will not tell you that a drug will work with high certainty, but in sort of the neonatal stages of working with grad students, you know, a decade ago, I remember viewing the world in determinate framework. And I think one thing that kind of changed for me recently was viewing that more as linked to competence. So somebody's expectation that something will work a certain way being linked to their competence and, and less to a general worldview. And I think the determinant people or the competent kind of set often will predict that something won't work, but they'll have a reason why it, you wouldn't, you couldn't have known a, a framework for what they expect to happen and a reason for why you couldn't have known why something would work out in the first place. So I, I basically the, the most successful common people I know in biotech have much more determinant worldviews than one would expect. And I think there are just many, many, many people in biotech who are not well-trained or who associate words with the idea that these words have proven concepts behind them. For example, cancer or cancer model is assumed to be actually a cancer model. And really, the first person who created that mouse would have told you, no, it's real, you know, here's what I'm doing. It's an experiment for these reasons. Um, but now there's all this kind of um, vocabulary that incorrectly implies we know what we're doing that has just been kind of passed on to the next generation. And, but I think the really good people kind of see through that a little bit and really do understand what is meant by certain words and it allows them to make better predictions. Yeah, I guess my experience has been I ask people to make a prediction and they're just really, really unlikely to be willing to give me any concrete number. <laughs> and like I think I think this is somewhat true for people in general, but you know, these people are scientists, right? They're testing the hypothesis for a reason and they won't even give me a confidence interval about how likely that hypothesis is to be confirmed or not. I mean, surely implicitly somewhere in there, they, they must have some idea, but they almost seem to have this like Stockholm syndrome where they won't even like admit it out loud because <laughs> it's like putting those beliefs to the test, even in so far as like making an, an on the record prediction of what might happen. Pretty rare. There are some moving stories. For example, the founder of GPCRs being taken off HHMI and having to support his lab on salary from being an emergency room doctor, which may make one more humble about predicting sort of scientific competence. But yeah, that makes sense. 
I mean, is that is that an example or a counterexample of the thing I'm talking about, right? I mean, like, he wasn't sort of believed in by the field, but he was right. <laughs> Right. Like, I think I think that's like the rare example of of sort of when this thing works. Like it 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 was a guy who was who was sort of crazy and didn't have the faith of the field, but he believed in the thing and and, and he got it done. Right. And, and, and he got approved. Yeah. I mean, I suppose one question is just like, is there a way that we could enable that kind of person more or do you think we're sort of making the right trade-offs in terms of who to fund who to not fund and how how many of this category of person do you think exists well empirically there have not been that many right (laughs) but has their you know impact been sufficiently disproportionate that we should try how do we think about non-trained scientists investing in in biotech many famous Biotech VC has been scientists. How do we think about this? Great scientists have this characteristic, which is that they bend over backwards in Feynman's words to get at the truth. And you need that in a startup. However, that often comes with a huge reticence to even speculate on things that could be outside the realm of probability. I call it scientist speak. It's a way of talking that prefaces everything with a, well, I don't really know what I'm talking about, or this probably isn't true, but, um, and it's a way of signaling to others in the scientific community that you really are quite competent because you're aware of how much you don't know. Entrepreneurially, that's very hard to yeah. translate over. That doesn't sell. <laughs> right. And so if you look at many great companies, they come with a pair. You have the Bob Swanson and the Herb Boyer. So the person who can really sell the vision, take out, you know, in the Genentech IPO roadshow, they literally had these little beads that they had clicked together to show recombinant DNA and this great visual. And, but then you also have the pragmatic truth seeker who can help the organization get to what may actually work biologically. Yeah, I definitely think that it's hard to find those two in the same package. That is exceptionally, exceptionally rare, which is why it's always good to have a (laughs) co-founder. And you see this less in tech, but it's not zero in tech often either. There there are often a pair of which one of them is more socially competent and one is more technically competent. But yeah, in terms of non-specialists in biotech, um, I am not formally trained, right? But what I did do is spend, you know, hundreds and thousands of hours, like, just pouring over scientific journals and papers, right? And just like learning on my own time, a lot of the particular details that you need. And so do I think that you need a formal credential? I'm not going to lie. It helps a lot to have other people take you seriously. Do I think it's an absolute requirement? I sort of can't really believe that (laughs) Um, in some sense, right? But uh you know, look, I think there are different things that you need to evaluate when you're evaluating a startup, right? It's not just whether the product is good. It's not just whether the science is good. It's whether we believe that the company can sell itself. Yeah. If nothing else, it has to raise another round after this one, almost always, right? And at most, if they're actually selling like a tool or a service or some other input, they actually have to generate sales. Right. So from that perspective... Um, All else equal, you know, it's probably better to have someone with a lot of training in science evaluating the scientific aspects of the company. And I would say in biotech, that really matters, right? right? 
because it's not like in tech where, you know, you can push something to production and it doesn't go that well. Well, you can, you know, pull it back and fix it and put it back out again right away. You don't do that once you've started the FDA process, right? So um, I do think actually having that upfront expertise is extremely, extremely helpful. But at the same time, I think that non-biotech experts can still evaluate a lot of the same features, right? Because they're still startups, they're still companies, they're still businesses. I guess I was curious what gave, in your mind, Teal, the confidence that he can make a statement like about sort of our need to be more determinate. Uh, what gave confidence in his own sort of understanding of science? And maybe him, like he, like you, has spent all this time, you know, self-training, basically. Or I guess how would you? Or, but or is that do you not need that in order to? Well, I think for some of him, it's like a philosophical worldview, right? Like he fundamentally does believe that we can understand the world, right? And from there, I think a lot of a lot of being a VC is just about developing these sets of heuristics for who to trust and why. And again, you can you can always select on the sort of non scientific correlates of a business, right? Yeah. You can tell whether someone knows how to sell, right? And that's that's always true. That that is a universal skill. So again, I don't think you have to be technical yourself to evaluate a startup. You can always get someone to help you. Yeah. So, well, you've seen, uh, uh, because you've been doing this for some time at Laura, you have too, you've seen how longevity as a space has sort of evolved uh, over time. Why don't, you, why don't you guys talk a little bit about how that sort of emerged as a category and how it's evolved since? In 2011, longevity was a barren wasteland with uh, tumbleweeds occasionally <laughs> Kind of pulling through, there had been uh, only a couple companies ever started that claimed to target the aging process. And on the biology side, there was a lot of promising science, but clinically there was nothing there. This year, you're seeing literally the first drugs show data in patients that are targeting mechanisms of aging that we're excited about. And that's a, that's a huge step forward. We don't know whether this first wave of therapies will result in drugs that work, but having patients exposed to drugs that sort of came up through this field is, it's a, the first time in human history that that's ever happened. And it's really exciting. And it's happening literally the past couple of years. Yeah, I think there was a social inflection point that came with the announcement of Calico. And I think that showed for the first time there was real money and interest behind longevity as a concept. And that, I think, changed the, just, just the nature of the conversation. Um, the other thing I would point out happening around that same time is the rise of senolytic drugs, which you yourself were actually quite involved in, like the first big company like you helped start. And so that, that sort of gave, gave evidence to the idea that this was something worth talking about. Right. The idea that, that there could be these therapies that could clear senescent old cells from your body, right. That are causing these like systemically harmful effects. I think, I think the pairing of that entire class of drugs and therapies plus it becoming socially acceptable to talk about it. I think that was like the perfect combo that just made this whole space take off. Um, I would be uh, curious to hear you weigh in on, um, Beyond senolytic drugs, where do you think longevity is sort of uh, performing the best as a field or like what things you see starting to come down the pike? We should talk about programmed aging. I'm sure we both have opinions about that subject. <laughs> yeah. This is the time. Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> 
one sort of misapplied analogy that people have tried to use in the past for longevity is the Manhattan Project or the creation of the atomic bomb. We're definitely not engineering longevity in anywhere that level of determinism. What's exciting is two major buckets of therapies. One involves tweaking genetic pathways, which we believe might impact lifespan for some reason. I think evolutionarily, it's very unclear the why. Perhaps we'll never know. The other bucket involved doing a myriad of different things that generally could fall under the heading of removing damage or rejuvenation writ large. And that includes many very futuristic things like trans replacing whole organs, which are also relevant for just disease in general. We're seeing both approaches push their way towards the market. The first bucket has, you know, over 60 in, in some sort of classification 90 different things in it that are interesting to, to watch. The second bucket has almost too many things to count in that the, just so many things could fall into that heading that it's hard to keep track of them all. Right. And so I think what we're fascinated by is watching the first bucket because that's, you know, I, I think what we want to see is the first striking reversal of an aging phenotype in humans. And striking is the key word. It, yeah. the, a, a small movement on a graph is great, but a kind of striking movement in health by manipulating these pathways, I think unlocks 10 times the kind of calico cascade of capital and interest and genuinely like sort of scientifically motivated interest in the field. And that would be super exciting. Um, Fully concur with that. We, we absolutely need some obvious convincer. And I think, again, that just changes the whole conversation, right? And particularly changes like what funding flows to. I am definitely with you on the regenerative medicine side of things. Um, and it seems clear if we can just undo damage, then to some degree we've, we've solved the problem. Genetic manipulations I've personally been a little bit more skeptical about. Um, when I've sort of looked through most of the known mechanisms, it seems like there's a complex of growth, repair, nutrient sensing, right? Uh, and, and it really does seem like almost every large effect that we get on aging via these interventions has something to do with that sort of one shared common pathway. Um, I'm curious if you would disagree with that assessment or, or see things that are substantially outside of that. I can think of four to five pathways, which like most things in biology link together somewhere or another, which might fall into that. I do think there are some examples of drugs in people today, excluding the ones that I've, you know, sort of restore biounity, which are the ones that are explicitly focused on aging, which make mice live longer when given to the mice overexpressed or given as a, as a biologic and seem to have positive effects on age relevant diseases. And those types of things I think are pretty compelling in terms of is there a protein that when administered in higher levels than one might normally see impacts lifespan? Okay. Maybe it's not programmed aging per se, but that that is modulating aging in a sense. So I I put that forward as evidence in in that camp. I mean, most, most of the things that I think of are like rapamycin, right? Which is very, very clearly acting to like suppress. But I I think the huge story is that there's like 60, I mean, there, there's such a variety of different things that impact lifespan and you always hear about rapamycin and metformin and um, the insulin IGF pathway and caloric restriction and mTOR you know, in other ways, 
but there's so, so many more pathways that are we found like that and many of them come from outside the field of aging so i think there's just such a huge green field of pathways potentially hopefully that might come more to the fore and those pathways are super interesting but i mean I, if the field was just those pathways i don't think i'd be very excited about it i think that might be a bit of a constrained uh place to play is there anything else you guys wanted to cover or you think you're you have questions for for each other what is your ultimate goal in life? My ultimate goal in life? I mean, I would actually like to achieve biological immortality. Like, if if, if we can, I think we absolutely should. And if not that, um, I'm okay with uploading too. <laughs> so, <laughs> say you achieve either of those things, how, you'll, how will you spend the next thousand years? Well, hopefully it'll be much more than a thousand, but um, having fun conversations like these, I think. What about blockchain? I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm selling some biocoin. <laughs> I am excited about it for reasons completely unrelated to biotech. Thank you very much. Have a good night. <laughs> um. My guests today have been Laura Deming of Longevity Fund and uh, Will Eden, formerly of Teal Capital, now working EIR with Eric Anderson. For people who want to go deeper in your work, where, where else can you point them? Laura, perhaps we'll start with you. So I have a blog at ldeming.com, and you can also look at our website, longevity.vc. And um, you are taking applications for age? Oh, thank you for asking. Uh, so we just launched our applications for Age 1 Batch 3. Age 1 is an accelerator where we give companies half a million dollars and support for three months to go from either idea or a one to two-year-old startup to their first round of seed funding. So far, we've had over 11 companies, and they've raised over $30 million across them in the course of under a year. So we're super excited to open up those applications, and the application deadline is December 7th. Uh, yeah, great. And um, for me, I probably should put a little bit more of my thinking online. But uh, in the meantime, you can uh, check out my Twitter feed, William A. Eden, E-D-E-N. Well, Laura, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you very much. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 